Good morning, friends. Happy New Year, blessed Epiphany, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Today is Monday, January 8th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. And here in southwest Minnesota, it's a snowy one. We received our first major snow accumulation of the year overnight with 7 to 10 inches of the white stuff. So the kids are out of school. Well, sort of. They have e-learning days now. It's not like when we were kids. But still, the snow is still coming down. It's slowing everybody down. It's making it a bit colder outside. But that's not a problem for us, right? We're going to warm up with God's word as we open up a new book of the Bible this new year. And it is going to be St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be looking at chapter one today. So come along as we dive into the Apostle Paul's opening introduction of his letter to the Christians in Ephesus. He's going to unpack the concept of what it means to be God's chosen one and brings up the often misunderstood concept of predestination. We're going to explore how our identity and inheritance are rooted in Christ and the assurance that this brings us. So, dear saints, thank you for listening, whether it be over the air, online at KFUO.org, or using that KFUO app or your own favorite podcasting app, maybe even smart speakers, right? No matter how you tune in, I'm just glad you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds, we're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. And if you have comments or questions about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello, email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I regularly get listener emails, and I love hearing where you're from and how Thy Strong Word is part of your devotional life. You can also find me on Facebook. You can friend me there, send me messages, or you can call in with your comments or questions at 800 730 Well, joining us this morning is the Reverend Neil Wemus. He's the Associate Pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. Good morning, Pastor Wemus. How are you this beautiful morning? Good morning. I am doing well. We're getting ready for our own little snowstorm this morning. Yeah, you know, I mean, 7 to 10 inches up here in Minnesota isn't completely unusual, but it's been kind of warm so far, and I've been enjoying it, you know. So do you have any snow on the ground right now? Not really, just a little bit of dusting. Sure, sure. Well, I tell you what, I'm glad that you've taken the time to join us today, and I'm excited to dig into Ephesians. Today's a big topic, Uh, you know, predestination. It's one that is misunderstood across Christian traditions, and I think— fairly misunderstood even within our own Lutheran tradition amongst the laity for sure, and I think even among a few pastors. So I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in and putting ourselves under the authority of God's Word and, and finding out exactly what Paul is communicating to us here. Uh, but before we get into any of that, I think it's probably a good idea to start together in prayer, our first prayer of the year, and it's going to be led by you, brother. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and start us off. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray your wisdom and guidance as we dig into the Word as it is uh, written through the Apostle Paul to the people in Ephesus, and we pray that you'd guide us and lead 
give us discernment as we dive into a very challenging topic, especially that of predestination. We pray your blessing on all those who hear and us as we walk through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I tell you what, why don't we set the stage? You know, we don't have anything to recap because it's been, uh, well, at least 12 or more days since we've been on the air together. Uh, So maybe just start this off by telling us a little bit about the book itself. You know, we know that Paul wrote it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, but you know, who are the Ephesians? Who's he writing it to? Um, Is it is it even really to the Ephesians? I know that there are some textual variants that leave off the Ephesus part. So some scholars think that maybe this book was more one that would be circulated. But or, or even if it was to the Ephesians, it doesn't mean it wasn't circulated. So tell us a little bit about uh, the letter here. Well, from what I got, from what I've dug into it, uh, is basically it's written to uh, a community uh Yes, to the Ephesians. Uh, I didn't really dive too much into the the debates as to who it was written to, but it was mostly. It's basically it's a it's a it's a church that's dealing with um, a lot of issues, especially with the Jews and the Gentiles. It's a kind of a diverse um, group. Uh, it's one that uh, Paul spends a lot of time in. If you read the Book of Acts. He spent there more time there than any other church. Um, so yeah, that's sure. What have you got? Well, I, yeah, just to jump in then um, on that idea of, and I just sort of discovered this today, so I don't think this is common knowledge, but the oldest copies of this letter don't actually include the Greek phrase in Epheso. So it, it would read uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So it would have been left out. And so there are some who think, well, maybe the idea that Ephesus was inserted later, uh, perhaps to reflect the letter's first destination, like it's going to be circulated, but it heads to Ephesus first. Others think that it could be that same letter that's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. Verse 16 says in Colossians, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So we see that this is also something that is common amongst letters. Maybe this is the letter he was mentioning. But at the same time, there's only a handful of of these early copies from the same region that omit those words. So, you know, it, it very well could be that it was to Ephesus, but it doesn't challenge our faith at all that these are letters that are circulated around. For instance, it's been circulated around to us this morning. So it is for all believers everywhere. Just thought that was an interesting note. And he begins his letter. I'm going to read the first two verses because this is a very, oh, let's just say programmatic way to begin a letter. It's just kind of how you start letters. We've talked about this before, but here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first two verses. Uh, Very likely something that you just sort of you tack on the top of the letter because that's what you do with letters. You know, Paul, who he is, I'm an apostle. This is why, because of Jesus, because of God. And here it is, too. 
uh, <laughs> we see that elsewhere, right? Yep. It's yeah. pretty much in most of Paul's letters. He gives his nice little intro and, um, and it's kind of, but it's kind of an intro that's got a lot packed into it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, call yourself an apostle, but by the will of God, when you tie that in with what we know of Paul's previous life, that, uh, it, that will of God, it's, yeah, that's kind of going to tie well with what we're going to start talking about, uh, being chosen and all that type of theme. And it's very much kind of leading you into that. Um, and it's interesting. Also, well, I was going to say, I want to, I want to interject before you continue because I think you make a really good point. You know, we know that when the Apostle Paul was writing these letters, he's also writing in the context of many of the other apostles, some of the apostles he calls super apostles. They don't really, at least at the beginning, don't really respect Paul very much. And why would they, right? He, he was persecuting Christians for, for most of his adult life. So, so when he calls himself an apostle, he's doing the right thing. He is called an apostle, but he adds this, he adds this by the will of God. Um, or we see in his other letter in First Corinthians, you know, he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's always sort of defending his apostleship. But what you brought up really sparked in my mind. Yeah, I mean, we he's going to talk a little bit about how we, the Gentiles in particular, the, the mystery that we are brought into the same covenant promises and we receive the same adoption as sons as the Jews, that's, a, that's something not everybody was ready to accept. So even though Paul is, a, is, you know, is the, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he does know what it's like. He knows what it's like to be called by God and yet not everybody accept that. So you're, you're right. I think that really will play into a lot of what he's going to talk about. I, I never thought of it that way. And second note, I kind of want to note, kind of a little bit of a liturgical note. Uh, in verse 2, where he's talking, when he says the grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, just a slight liturgical note is that uh, most, many hearers probably hear their pastor say that at the beginning of many of their sermons. And I don't know if, I don't know if you introduce your sermons the same way or not, but it's, Basically, it's kind of an nice little note that every sermon that a, a pastor delivers to his congregation is sort of his epistle to the congregation, uh, kind of as what Paul is writing to Ephesians or whoever it might be. And so I thought just kind of a little connection as to why the pa- your pastor will say those words at the beginning of every sermon. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. And this is a common greeting from him. And we do. We adopt it up. You know, it's become so commonplace. And I don't want to say that it's rote, but you're right. I do start the sermons the same way. I, I've been taught, like most, I think, LCMS pastors, you know, we, uh, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And then you go into the sermon. So, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. It, it connects us to to the apostles who are being called by God to preach only what is revealed to them. And of course, unlike Paul, who's being led along by the Holy Spirit in a very special way, we too are led along by the Holy Spirit, but 
of course, we are confined to that revelation in the Bible. So we're not up there saying new things, but we certainly are doing our, our level best <laughs> to proclaim the, the the word of the Lord as as God gives it to us. And yeah, I think that's a that's a great that's a great point. Well, we have this little introduction. It's pretty standard, uh, but there is there is a lot into it. But the big meat of it starts right away with verse three. He, he, he begins with a doxology, a great doxology, we call it. Uh, it's he, he, we find this doxology in Second Corinthians and First Peter. But, you know, this one is the, the most fleshed out. But then it gets into what we were talking about earlier, and that is how do we fit in to God's plan of salvation? Not just Gentiles, but all people. So I'm going to go ahead and read. Oh, let's just say verses 3 through 10 and get us started. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All right, that ends us. And by the way, folks, that is one. No, that's two sentences, two sentences. Paul is the king of run on sentences. He writes a lot like I do. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think verse, look at my Greek. Is it at the end of verse six that, the first sentence ends, and then the second one goes till about verse 10. Yeah, yeah. the ESV editors put it at the end of verse uh, 4, but yeah, pretty much. It's it's kind of the same thing. And yeah, you know what? Where the sentences end is left a lot to the interpreters, but we do know that yeah, Paul just sort of, it's almost like a stream of consciousness. You know, one thing after another, after another. Who knows? Maybe that's the Holy Spirit, how he's inspiring him. But, but still, he begins with, blessed be God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just taking that first clause, you know, some things pop out that might be a little confusing. You know, we're saying blessed be God because he's blessed us in Christ, and that's going to be really important. But with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, like what does that mean? Start us off. Take us through that. Well, I got it. All right. Um, well, I was just going to say is that I'm kind of focusing on the fullness of this. I know that's not to totally pull away right from your question. <laughs> that's but, okay. It happens all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but anyway, I just look at the entire paragraph as but the entire verses that we've read through. It's just incredible descriptions of the, the really strong words that are used all throughout it. And so every you know every spiritual blessing, um, this is going to kind of come in as we start to talk about the um, 
big heirs of heirs of the kingdom, the heirs of of the family father. Um. So and as we start to talk about forgiveness and grace and all these wonderful things, um, I mean it's yeah every spiritual blessing, right? And yeah, you know, and it, it's interesting because I when we talk about being blessed in Christ, you know that, and that's what you're picking up on. It seems as you look at it as a whole is that everything that we're going to receive, including the predestination that we're going to talk about, and this is important, is in Christ, you know, through Christ, because of Christ, by Christ. So even later when we talk about, you know, being predestined before the foundation of the world, you know, that's through Christ. It happens through Christ. I wanted to illustrate, just bring up, and that's okay if you didn't pick up on it. It happens all the time, but but the in the heavenly places – that's another that's another area where the Greek is a little is a little fuzzy because we could say in heavenly things, you know, be, the reason why I wanted to emphasize heavenly places is because it comes up again and again. It's going to come up in this very chapter in verse 20. It's going to come up again in chapter two and chapter three and chapter six. You know, in chapter six, it talks about against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So. Getting a, our mind around these heavenly places, what he's talking about, uh, might be you know something worth doing. And the Greek really just says in the heavenlies, you know, not places or things or anything, just in the heavenlies. But we're going to see these blessings come forth as we go through. We're going to see uh, it's about being predestined, being redeemed, made heirs, sealed by the Spirit. All of these kind of things, the fact that he loves us, that they're all happening in these heavenly places. That is, they're outside of us. So, yeah, moving into verse 4 then, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, let's just go ahead and get right to the elephant in the room. He chose us in Christ before anything, right? In eternity, before the foundation of the world, before we ever did anything, before we ever existed, we've already been chosen. But do all people then just automatically go to heaven no matter what, since we've been chosen? You know, uh, what, what do we what do we say here? I mean, I think it's a serious concern because Christianity is pretty divided over how to interpret this. Yeah, the this is what we call the crux theologorum, the the fancy word of the cross of the theologian is, um, and you know, debated as to what that means. Is that because it's the center of all the um, discussion? I mean, the debates amongst church bodies, um, or is it just the fact that it's simply it? How you answer this question does influence um, a lot of theology. Um, even what we understand about baptism, which you know will be talked about in uh, chapter three, uh, you know that's influenced by this question um, about this choosing, and and so does he choose everyone? And well, that's kind of, that's where it gets complicated. It is, and so. Well, verse four is kind of like the verse four is kind of like the win, like when were we chosen, right? So even as he chose us 
in him, in Christ, and when? Before the foundation of the world. Then it gets into the why in the rest of this and in verse 5. So why did he choose us? Well, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then as we get into verse 5, in love, right? So that's the why. Why did he do it? What was his motive? Out of his love for us. So continuing, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So so God purposefully wanted to do this, and he wants us to do this. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious name, right? So that we would praise his undeserved kindness, right? So we're predestined to be adopted as his children, and to become blameless and holy in his sight. So what we wrestle with, though, is not necessarily if this is true, because this has to be true, right, brother? I mean, it's in the Bible. Yep. But what it doesn't say anywhere is that there are people who are predestined before the foundation of the world to eternal damnation. You know, we know from Second Peter 3 that, you know, It says, God is not, or the Lord rather, is not slow to fulfill his promise as you count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the predestination really is is only one-sided. And and this frustrates, I think, our Calvinistic friends who say reason dictates that if he's chosen some before the foundation of the world, then he's condemned others. Whereas we, I think, again, to their frustration, say, no, we take comfort in knowing that we've been predestined, those who believe from the foundation of the world, but we don't know. We don't, we don't read into something where it's not there. Even if, using, uh, even if human reason should ask us or, or compel us to say we want to finish the sentence, we can't. We can't speak where God has been silent. It's kind of interesting is, you know, I – I'm going to take it kind of a step backwards a little bit. So going back into the verse four, where it talks about before the foundation of the world and, you know, God choosing us, which for one that tells us this is not God's plan B. There's kind of this idea sometimes that Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan B says, you know, before the foundation of the world, this is what, this is what he was already planning. And I know that gets into a whole other complicated question, some other complicated questions, but um, but choosing, you read through scripture over and over, it's really hard to get past the reality that God, yeah, chooses us for salvation. And, you know, it's, you know, Jesus says, you know, you did not choose me, me but I chose you. And... You know, this is scattered throughout the scriptures. And so kind of, yeah, the Calvinist um, lo- tries to go to the logical. Well, if God has chosen us, chosen some for salvation, then, well, obviously he must be choosing some for not being saved. That's kind of their, um, kind of the logical attempt. But, yeah, it doesn't really work when you have God, what it, yeah, scripture saying that God desires all to be saved, and it doesn't make sense for him to choose people to be condemned, but also, um, not want them to be condemned. Yeah, it's kind of a logical inconsistency. 
Right. And, so, and of course, and our friends of that persuasion, you know, we they exercise what we like to call a felicitous inconsistency in the way they behave. And I'm, I'm sure they would argue different. They would say it's nuanced and that's completely fair. But from our point of view, it's like if you already if God has already determined if you're going to heaven or you're going to hell, if that were true, then what's the point of telling people about Jesus? What's the point of offering them forgiveness in the sacrament or, or telling them that Jesus loves them or proclaiming the uh, God's uh, forgiveness to anybody. And yet, of course, they do those things. Of course they do. Um, you know, they're compelled by their Christian faith to do those things. So we see that that's an inconsistency. Felicitous just means happy. It's a happy inconsistency. You know, if they were really strict to this idea of double predestination, as we call it, then what would be the point? But we're very grateful that they continue to proclaim God's word, even if, uh, you know, they err in some of those areas. And so we, too. Oh, pardon me. Go ahead. I was going to actually what I was I've kind of always thought a good illustration to kind of the visual visualize this understanding of predestination um, is actually using the parable of the good um, of the prodigal son. And I know this is probably not the way it's intended to be used, but if you think of the parable of the prodigal son, when the younger son returns, um, having you know squandered every all of his um, all of his finances, all of his money, and he had a desperate state, he comes back to the father, and. The father ends up, it says that the father runs to him. And what's one of the interesting things that I think Kenneth Bailey uh, highlighted that when the younger son is returning, he is not yet repentant. When he's returning, he is, he's just kind of, he's not feeling sorry for what he's done. He's more feeling sorry for himself. And so he's, when he's returning, He's just kind of like, hey, dad, I broke your heart. You know, how can I make how much can I make the checkout for type idea? And so it's not the son that chooses the father. It's actually the father who chooses the son. The father runs and embraces him and throws the celebration. And so why is there a party going on in this celebration for the that the young son is enjoying in it's because the father made that choice. But on the flip side, you have this older son. The older son is standing outside refusing to go in. And is the reason he is refusing to go in because the father doesn't want him? Of course not. The father's out there trying to get him to come in and he's refusing. And that kind of is a visual of the two the two answers. So like you have one who was, who's feasting in the, you know, the celebration of the father because the father chose it. You have the one that is not because he is in refusal. And mm. does that make sense? That, oh, it does. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Now this Kenneth Bailey, he's a Presbyterian or he's passed on to I glory know. now. Um, but I know that I, I just read an article um, not the long ago on this same topic, and so I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, and I read it from the Catholic Register of all places. So you know, it, he it's interesting because you know here he has this this view of how to kind of work out what we call the felicitous inconsistency that you were just talking about. We were just talking about. So yeah, I think that's I think that's fascinating because 
you know, we also hear and, and bumper sticker theology is rarely reliable, but but we hear things like, you know, anyone who ends up in hell basically chose to go there. Now, I, I don't I don't think that really plays out perfectly, but it, it does get to this sense of the forgiveness of sins is for everybody uh, in a way. God and maybe this is the way to look at it, and, and, and please correct me if I'm misguided, but really God has predestined all people to be saved, and he's given us the method by which he wants us to be saved. And here in Ephesians, which is the most uh, in-depth treatment of predestination, and even it's pretty lacking in some of the questions we have, but but he, he gives us the basis upon which people can be saved, and that is through Christ, which is why we go out and we we do God's electing work or he does his electing work through us as we proclaim the word. But folks, right now we got to proclaim a few words from our sponsors and announcements. So I'm going to go ahead and cast it over to break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Neil Wemus. He's the Associate Pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in uh, Ida Grove, Iowa, not too far from me. Hey, do, dear, dear folks, don't forget that you can contact me at PastorBoo at gmail.com or on Facebook with your questions, comments, and more. You can also call in with questions or comments to 800 730 2727. Now, Pastor, before the break, you brought up Kenneth Bailey and his treatment of the prodigal son. I wanted to read a quote from that article I read from uh, uh, Mr. Bailey. He says, as the father comes down and out to reconcile his son, he becomes a symbol of God in Christ. Father, a symbol for God, ever so quietly involves into a symbol for Jesus. And once reconciliation is assured, the father says, let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father does not say he was lost and has come home. Instead, we read he was lost and is found. So who found him? The father did, he says. So there is this idea that when Paul is speaking so much about predestination, it is against the backdrop. That in Paul's time, people believed that all sorts of supernatural forces controlled human destiny. You know, magic, uh, other gods, uh, other spiritual beings, you know, just, you know, fate, uh, not karma in this area, but the concept of karma, these kinds of things, good fortunes, bad fortunes. So I think there's a lot here when Paul uses this word 
uh, proorzio, I think I'm mispronouncing that, but this idea of to choose or to decide beforehand or predestined as it's translated, he's, he's really doing this against the concept of if you want to know who's responsible for your salvation, it isn't the winds of fate or as, uh, or as uh, Kenneth Bailey said, it isn't you because you've done something, but rather God is the one in control. So for me, and I'm sure for you too, brother, this brings me great comfort. Now, while we might struggle academically over, you know, the unstated binary opposite, that is, you know, if he says people are predestined, but we know people go to hell, then what happened? But really, this is a message of comfort to those who look at their lives and say, I don't deserve to be saved, which is true of all of us. But now we look to Paul and, and he writes, he says, it's all God's doing. I mean, I think that's the takeaway, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and yeah, it's kind of, it's a it's an incredible insurance because um it forces you to look outside of yourself and forces you to look at what he has done. It this is, you know, it's in Christ Jesus. It's according to his purpose. He's the one that's doing this. And I think that even the whole idea of a you know, having to make your own choice, that you have to make the choosing. Um, and I know there are, on the other opposite, so on the one side of the spectrum, you have the the Calvinist who is going to, ar- that argues that you're chosen for condemnation, double predestination. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have the more Arminian theology, uh, the idea that you, that one has to make acceptance or choose Christ. And which ultimately is a work of man. And, you know, a lot of times we're not 100% certain about our decisions. We're not 100%. Did I really mean that? Am I, I don't know. Is my decision genuine? Do I really believe this? And when you listen, you understand that when you read through the scriptures, that he's the one that's doing the choosing, that he's the one that does it. It takes a lot of takes everything off of your back, and you rely just on him. And yeah, it's incredibly comforting. Oh yes, you know, and and that's that's another thing too, because we we look at ourselves and we say, well, we don't deserve to be saved, and that's a, a right assessment. And yet, you know, we are the ones being redeemed. That language of redemption comes up in these verses. Now we've already read them, but I'm gonna read some read them again, seven through ten. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That word, that word redemption, it comes from a a polytrosis Right. That it's the act of paying money to free a slave. I mean, it's just a very practical, real life word in this culture. And and that's what he's doing. He's paying us off. He's paying off our debt. Rather, he's paying the debt through the blood of Jesus. So really, you know, we can't take any credit for it, which is a good which is a good thing, because, you know, how do you know if you're sincere? You know, if you're one who says, well, you know, you have to make sure that every part of their body gets under the water for baptism or it doesn't count. 
or those people who say God does nothing for us in baptism, but you still have to do it perfectly. You know, there's all these little expectations that we put on everything. But the truth is, it's not about the waving of hands or the the lining of the stars, but it is God doing all the work. Um, I'm going to keep reading verses 11 through uh, 14. Hold in on, him. I... Go ahead. I was just like, oh. Can I jump in here a little bit? Sorry. Yes, you can jump um, in so anytime first... you want. All right, so I so the word redemption, I I kind of was um, one of the things I realized a while ago is that when we read redemption and forgiveness, we kind of unintentionally when we say those words next together together we we unintentionally make it sound like we're saying the same thing as if they're synonyms, and the way I've kind of illustrated the word redemption, it's actually a word that if you at most people have actually seen that word is so I use the analogy is like, you know, we have a subway here in town. We don't have a lot of rest like chain restaurants. Well, we have one chain restaurant at subway. And so uh, if you go to subway, let's say you have a coupon for a free sub sandwich and it says redeemable at such and such subway. And so you bring there and you redeem it. And that coupon, you know, rescues your subs, your sandwich from the from the salesman or whatever, and you could eat it or whatever. So, kind of the same, similar of the idea is that we are born in prison. We are born dead. We are born in slave to sin, and so he redeems us, as it says there, through his blood. Not so. In other words, not with silver or gold or with a, a subway coupon, but with his blood, he redeems us and he purchases us and frees us from the slavery that we are born into. And I love this language of lavish, the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful words. And then I kind of like at verse 10, is it says, as a plan for the fullness of time, um, only a few weeks ago, the gospel, the epistle lesson was from Galatians, where he talks is that familiar word in Galatians three, where he said, or Galatians four, that the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And so, I can't help but notice that similarity right here, and I think it's going to come up again in this next paragraph. He uses that exact same word, word that in the fullness of time, um, you know, part of that fullness of time that he set forth his son includes choosing you to be uh, his son, be a son, be an heir, to be redeemed through his blood. And so that's, it's just incredible, it's kind of awe-inspiring to think about that in the fullness of time. God worked, yeah, you, worked all this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not only that, but just the the knowing that God's timing is in play here, right? God has a plan. God has timing. And we are scandalized sometimes by his timing. Like, you know, why did Jesus come in, you know, when he did and to where where he did? Why didn't he come today? Why didn't he come 3,000 years earlier? You know, we, we get scandalized by the time sometimes, but 
really, that's just our own sinful nature questioning God's word, because what we really should be doing is rejoicing that God has a plan, rejoicing that God's timing works, even if it's not consistent with our timing. For instance, I would love for the Lord to return before the end of the show, and he might, but if he doesn't, it's all according to his plan, and I don't have to worry about it. But then what happens in that same verse, Chen, in the fullness of time to do what? What's the plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what we're looking forward to, that new heaven and that new earth, Eden restored in which we get to live with God. It's just, it is such good news. Let me go ahead and now add those verses because you're right. The theme continues. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." So now we have some uh, additional emphasis on this language of inheritance, something that previously had been reserved just for the Jews. But now look at this. Paul's talking about this inheritance becoming children of God to Gentiles. Again, something scandalous, but a part of God's plan because he's going to unite all things. Go ahead. Yeah, this and I can't I can't help but tie this again to Galatians because He's using very similar language that he used in there. And um, the language of inheritance. And I mean, it's absolutely humbling when you think about that. And scrolling up a little bit here. Sorry, I'm, I'm using a computer, so I say scroll. Uh, but on verse five, <laughs> is where it says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And I always, whenever I preach on this, I try to emphasize that it is son and don't think by bi- biological um, son is not, we're not talking about gender here. Uh, we're talking about um, status that you, you know, we are born slaves to sin, death and the devil. And in, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. So in other words, we are not no longer slaves, but sons. That means yes, yeah, sons and heirs. And, and it's heirs of not of anybody, but heirs of the most high God. It's incredible what God has given. Now, in verse 12, when he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, of course, he's talking in very contemporary terms. He's talking to the original audience, those first Gentiles who, you know, were called into faith. Uh, I guess I shouldn't say first, they're probably non-Jews throughout history, but you know, that's what he's talking about, this this great movement that God is making through Paul to proclaim the gospel of salvation to all people. You know, it began, here we are in Epiphany, right? So we got the foretaste of that with the Magi who came and worshiped Jesus, and now here it is continuing to be, or really starting off with Paul, but then continuing to be fulfilled today. I, I just, I, I think this is something that we who are not uh, necessarily part of like this ethnic Jew, you know, uh, Jewish nation or Jewish people, right? At the time, that made a big difference to them. 
Now, we've had 2000 years of understanding that, you know, the new Israel are all those who are are, are have faith in, in Christ. But back then, that wasn't the case, was it? I mean, you know, that your ethnicity, your nationality, you know, those things were built up as barriers. And I think instead of being priests to the whole world, God's chosen people really failed in that. And and we're not calling the nations to Zion. We're not calling the nations to Jerusalem, but we're rather building walls. And it's it's kind of like we do today, I'm afraid. You know, sometimes we get this idea that we're going to get to heaven and it's just going to be LCMS Lutherans. Well, we know better, but how often do we act like that? So this this is a truth that I think is even applicable today that we need to make sure that all people know that God desires everyone to be saved and that salvation comes not through ethnicity, not through good works, but just what it's saying here through the work of God, right? He's predestined us for faith through Christ. Yes, and that ties back again to verse 10, to unite all things in him. And, you know, the overarching, one of the overarching themes of Ephesians will be that division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And when you get into, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, when you hear those words, you can't help but think of that. And yeah, it's, we do have this, even in our day and age, we have a temptation of tribalism. And, but yeah, we are all one in him. Now, of course, we could continue to unpack and debate and explore predestination for, you know, (laughs) forever. Uh, But I think uh, for the sake of time, we should move into our next section. Any last thoughts, though, you want to make on the this part before we move into the next? Um, The only thing I would highlight is the um, verse 13, the. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Um, from a Lutheran understanding, uh, we would argue that this is what happens in baptism. And this is why uh, there's a during baptism, the pastor will say, receive the sign of the cross upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. And so... Um, kind of a, you know, a symbolic of what happens in baptism that you receive that seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit, and you are marked as one who is a child of God. And, um, you know, every time we hear, every time we make the sign of the cross is remembrance of that sealing that we receive, that, that marker that this is who you belong to. Well, we're going to move on now in this next section, actually verses 15 through the end, 23. It's really the first half of a a larger point that he's making that continues into the next chapter. But we're just going to treat this first section uh, on its own. So starting with verse 15 through the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
with what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all that's also pretty much one long sentence <laughs> so anyway this thanksgiving in prayer as the esv editors um, um name it but it's it's more than just sort of a thanksgiving and a little prayer he's he's really tying in at the very beginning of this letter the points that he's made so far you know it's about inheritance it's about god's love towards saints his the riches of his glory so uh, what can we learn from this, brother? Well, it's kind of, it, yeah, it's very much flowing through what we've already talked about. Um, of note is the very the Trinitarian uh, outline of this opening chapter. So the first, so in verses three to I think about four, you kind of, you have this, um, you know, focus on the work of the Father. Then all the way up until uh, verse 13, you're dealing with the work of the Son. And then now here at 13, and this entire paragraph is really working into the work of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, giving thanks for, yes, it is a thanks, but it's also reflecting upon the work that the Holy Spirit is in all in all of them. And it notes it's all the saints, so not just, you know, the Gentile saints, not just the Jewish saints, all the saints, all those who have been set apart by the grace and peace and mercy of our God. And, you know, I, and I can't help that verse 15, uh, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints that I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Um, I can't help but think that those are words I think every pastor has for those, the way that the faith has shined, shines forth through any of our members and, you know, the way they work in the church, the way they work uh, when, a, you know, the aha moments when you're teaching confirmation class or where kids just kind of get it or someone just gets it. And, you know, we can't help but cease to give thanks for all of that work and not to mention those scattered throughout. Um, so, yeah, and then verse 18, the having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that kind of, again, reminding that this is all the ways that the Holy Spirit works. I love also, you know, not only that. But, you know, he, he points all of this to the, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. I mean, I, I didn't number it up, but if we numbered up, even in this first chapter, how many times he talks about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you really can't walk away from this thinking that anything other than Christ's work is responsible for your salvation. And then even when we get into verse 22, the very last, well, the, the last two verses, 22 and 23, he says, and he put all things under his feet, Christ, 
gave him as the head over all things to the church. And then he helpfully defines to us what the church is, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there's a little bit of paradox there almost because, you know, Jesus fills all in all. He's, he, you know, but, but the church, the body is part of the fullness of him. So, so Christ, of course, is all sufficient, but he wants to be in all people. He wants to be uh, the fullness of him is really when all people in the church, those who are, are who are, are have faith in him, are out there doing his work, and and that's how the electing work happens, right? I mean, you know, God says, "I want to." Uh, I chose before the foundation of the world, but then He sends us out to proclaim this good news, and that His desire is that all people take hold of it. So, to me. I don't think there's room in predestination for this idea that God has already decided who's going to hell. There just simply isn't. His desire is that all people be saved. He sends Christ, who's the head over everything. We receive our fullness in him. He receives his fullness in all of us. It just really all works together. So it kind of takes me back to what I said earlier. Anyone who's not saved is because they're rejecting Christ, not because they haven't done the requisite things to come to him. Yes. Yes, indeed. And, and yeah, this, you know, this whole last paragraph is very much speaking to what are we doing now for those who are elect, we're striving and we're, you know, you know, we are bringing forth that gospel, speaking that gospel and ultimately but every every good work, every good thing, every faith, yeah, it keeps coming through that it's all in Christ. It's by this by the Spirit that we have any of this faith that we do anything of good. Well, brother, we're at the end of our time together. Uh, any last thoughts you want the people to take home with them? I would say. You know, just take the comfort that uh, you never, never have to rely on yourself. And if you ever doubt, you know, if if you are saved, don't look to yourself. Just look to the word and just read, you know, something as simple as for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Just read John 3.16. And those scriptures, those words have been there for, you know, for centuries. They haven't changed. It's you know, look outside of you and say, you know, is this true? Am I in the world? Yeah. It's, you know, it's such a wonderful comfort to know that he chose us. He, he does not predestined us for condemnation. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what joy and comfort as we live through a world that's not always so easy. Well, that's where we're going to leave it. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Neil Wemus. He's the associate pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. Pastor, thanks for being on the show. Blessings on the rest of your epiphany. Thank you. and God bless to you as well. And folks, I'm also grateful to you for listening to Thy Strong Word and joining us in this new year as we feast together upon God's Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we move into the next chapter. 
Our friend Pastor John Lakomsky will be joining us, and together we're going to explore how Paul masterfully lays out the profound truths about God's redemptive work. That through, though we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, it was out of his great mercy that he has made us alive together in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not by works, leaving no room for boasting. Pretty familiar stuff for Lutherans, right? But still, this powerful passage contains rich teaching about God's kindness and love toward us and how we are created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works, to serve God by serving our neighbor. That and more all tomorrow morning. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.